It's Tuesday, October the 19th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow, and I'll be your moderator today. I may have the honor of introducing the stars of our show. Now, two of them you already know by now. That would be the economist John Cochran and the geostrategist slash historian slash resident optimist, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. Ordinarily, Neil Ferguson rounds out our trio of Goodfellows, but Neil could not make the show this week. Instead, we are honored to be joined by Carolyn Hoxby. Carolyn Hoxby is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a member of Hoover's Correct Task Force on K-12 Education. She is also the Scott and Donya Obama Professor of Economics here at Stanford University. And as of next year, Carolyn Hoxby will be Vice President of the American Economic Association, the nation's oldest and most prestigious professional organization in the field of economics. Madam Vice President, if you don't mind me calling you that, welcome to Goodfellows. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here today. Now, our alert viewers may notice a trend. A couple of weeks ago, HR could not make the show in his place. We had Tyler Goodspeed, an economist. This week, we don't have Neil Ferguson in our place, Carolyn, an economist. Is this John Cochran's dirty work or what? <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, especially Carolyn, uh, because when we get together uh, privately, I'll say something outrageous. And Carolyn says, no, John, you're completely wrong. And here's exactly why, which is the greatest pleasure I have in my life. And so uh, when we had a slot, I jumped to try to get Carolyn to join us. Outstanding. I looked for an hour of those corrections. Uh, let's start the show today by talking about Colin Powell, who tragically we lost earlier this week. Uh, General Powell, of course, a uh, former uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of staff, uh, like HR, a former national security advisor, and most notably former uh, Secretary of State. He preceded uh, the director of the Hoover Institution, Condoleezza Rice, in that position. Uh, his story is certainly that of the American dream of the American immigrant. Um, I'd like you, HR, to kick off um, and this question to you. Uh, your thoughts on the great man, if you interacted with him, and this question, HR, Colin Powell may be gone, but does the Powell Doctrine live on? Uh, General Powell was a, a tremendous public servant, a tremendous military officer. And you know, I think in keeping with the theme of the show, right, I think he made clear in his memoir that he was a benefit of a strong education and his parents' emphasis on education. And but he was always called to service. And I think he set a great example for so for, for the country, for any young men and women who are considering service. But I have some a lot of really good fond memories of him. But when I came in quite unexpectedly to Washington as national security advisor. He called me up and he said, hey, how can I help you? And I said, well, I'd just love to get your advice and, and talk with you. And he said, well, you know what? I've been pretty critical of this new president, so you better, you're better off coming to my house for lunch. Well, at the time, you know, I, had, I had moved to Washington. You know, right. the, I was hired on a Monday. I moved on a Tuesday. And you know, I wasn't eating proper meals. You know? I mean, I was just working all day. I mean, oftentimes I think, what should, what should I have for lunch? And it was like 6 p.m., right? So, so I get to his house. He has a really great spread out. And I, I ate, I think, an astonishing amount. And he, he said to me at the end of our conversation, I need to have you out here more often because, you know, you, you need to be fed. But he, he was such a gracious person and a warm person and a true professional. So when, when I heard that he passed, I, I, grabbed his, I grabbed his book off my, off my shelf. And I turned to the back where I remember him really concerned about the country. And I think he was very prescient. I mean, the book came out in 95. So I think we ought to maybe just, just think about some of, the, some of the passages in the end. He said, so he, he talks about his last day in uniform, his last night in uniform after his retirement ceremony. He said, that night, I took off my uniform for the last time. In the years I had worn it, I had benefited beyond my wildest hopes from all that is good in this country. And I had overcome its lingering faults. I thought that's a powerful that's a powerful phrase, right? Because he's acknowledging that our republic is a work in progress, 
but all of us should do our best to help people gain equal access, right? Access to the great promise of, of America. And then, and then he also, he also said that, that he was troubled though, what was going on in the, in the country, but, but, but was grateful for his opportunity to serve. So he said, I, I had found something to do with my life that was honorable and useful that I could do well and that I loved doing. That is a rare, that is rare good fortune in anyone's life. My only regret was that I could not do it all over again. And then, and then finally, I think we might honor his memory, you know, by doing as he suggested back in 1995. He said, we have to start thinking of America as a family and stop screeching at each other, stop hurting each other, and instead start caring for, sacrificing for, and sharing with, with, with each other. So I, I, I recommend his memoir, and, and I think we could honor his memory by, by making good on, on his charge to us. And, and then finally, on the, on the Powell Doctrine, of course, you know, uh, Colin Powell was, was affected by a lost war in Vietnam. I think that's the best way to understand the Powell Doctrine of, of overwhelming force and making sure that you're going to have clear political support and so forth. But yeah, of course, sometimes wars choose you rather than the other way around. So I think it's important to recognize that, that, that we, we may have to fight wars that we have not won already. But it's interesting that I think a new generation of young officers are now experiencing the frustrations, the anger, the disappointment uh, of a lost war in Afghanistan, which we've talked about quite a bit. But his his generation of officers, Colin Powell's generation of officers, they bequeathed to our generation or an army that that was fundamentally changed from the from the you know, the ashes of of of, of Vietnam. They, they affected a real renaissance uh, in in our army, and and I think that. What all of us should endeavor to do in any institution is to is to pass on to the next generation uh, a stronger institution and a stronger nation that, than we inherited from those who went before us. Right. Carolyn, uh, HR mentioned that uh, Colin Powell is a public school graduate. He grows up in the South Bronx. He attends PS 39. He goes on to Morris High School, which is no more, I think. And then he goes to CCNY, where he graduates in 1958 and uh, is a second lieutenant at that time. And we know the rest of the story. You look at education, Caroline, you study it very carefully. Young kids growing up in inner city public schools today, are they getting the same opportunity that Colin Powell got? Uh, well, it's not in New York City. Um New York City in that era in which he grew up really had remarkably good public schools. It had very high standards for its teachers. Uh, it had high academic standards. I think it tried to offer a pretty rigorous education. I'm not saying that every public school, every PS in, um, in the New York City system was equally good, but it was a system that many people look back on and now say it was a remarkably good system. And, uh, I think the system has changed for many reasons, and a lot of them don't have anything to do with New York City. They just have to do with changes in American education and different emphases that we have now than um, during Colin Powell's uh, childhood, adolescence, and teenagehood. Uh, I would say on the whole, probably the New York City system of education may have become more equitable. It's probably become an easier place to be a disabled student or a student who is limited English proficiency or something like that. Uh, it might seem like a better uh, system if you are um, from a racial or ethnic disadvantaged background, underrepresented. But I would say that its standards have become somewhat um, just 
the standards have been somewhat lowered. I think in, in Colin Powell's day, I would almost describe it as an elite system that was really trying to get students up to a very high level of academic performance and had high expectations. And although he didn't go to one of the exam schools, one of the high schools where you have to take an exam in New York City to get in, uh, New York City does have still the most prominent set of exam high schools in the United States. They are extremely elite, but they also do in terms of academic uh, performance that they require but they also um, take in a lot of kids from economically disadvantaged families and from all kinds of racial and ethnic backgrounds. And one could argue that Stuyvesant, which is probably the most prestigious of them, but there are 20 some now exam schools in New York City. Stuyvesant arguably sends more low-income students to very good colleges and university than any other high school in the United States without even having a close second. Mm-hmm. So, so they really, they really had a system that they put in place at that time to have rigorous academic standards. And you know, it's hard for students if they if no one acquaints them with with what rigorous academic standards are, right. to really have a fair shot at opportunity because they just don't know what they don't know, right? Right. That's a really important point. Mm-hmm. John. This is a, a great, and we'll segue from Colin Powell to this point on education. Um, I, I was, uh, inter- when we, we talked about this, uh, so I went to an inner city public high school. It was 90% black, um, and uh, but it was tracked uh, and provided me with a spectacular education. Now the, the upper tracks where I was was 50-50, uh, but um, we got better English, math, chemistry, and especially physics than uh, the then the University of Chicago Lab School, which was right next door, mm-hmm. uh, and it provided therefore a track up to uh, to the um, you know to to everybody to the smart, ambitious, well prepared kids with good families from the Black South Side who went off to colleges and did things. I learned to program a computer in 1973 thanks to the Chicago public school system, which had a a better computer available to me than MIT did when I went there 1975, 79. I got to MIT by the way, and uh, half the kids there were from this place called Stuyvesant. Uh, so that was certainly possible. Now, due to a scheduling mix-up, I spent uh, a week or so in one of the lower-level uh, tracks of Kenwood Public High School, which was an absolute disaster. And I could sense the rage boiling in me, and I could not imagine how these kids uh, sat through that uh, horrible experience of babysitting. So I think what Carolyn said is right. In the old days, there was a way, it provided a way of excellence. You know, we, we were reading Chaucer in... in sophomore year of a public high school. There was a path to excellence, the path up to the elite, but um, the as today, uh, people were horribly well served, horribly ill served. Now, to turn this to, to Carolyn, wh- where did that go? I mean, it is possible for public schools to provide that wonderful education, um, but now it seems we're, we're giving the same horrible service that the kids in the lower tracks got to everybody. Um, in New York, uh, the, my understanding is that the charter schools are doing a wonderful job with low-income minority kids, and the public schools are by and large failing them completely. And we can't fail to notice that the big effort to get rid of not just the tracks in my school, which are gone, but the uh, exam-based 
uh, public high schools, as well as exams for entry into college and, and everything else. So this ability, this ability to let, to offer a way up into the American elite for people who are from nowhere seems to be sacrificed now in, in the public schools. Yeah, I mean, I think that there has been a very big detracking movement since the, well, since the 60s, I would say it sort of started in the 1960s. And um, I think a lot of the motivation behind the detracking was very well intentioned, because if you looked at different tracks in a high school, typically the uppermost track would be the most white. Today, it might be white and Asian, but it would be the most white. And the lower tracks would be more likely to be black and Hispanic. There was a socioeconomic difference. And also, I would say that if you were to look at the upper tracks, you were more likely to find um, children from two parent families, um, children who had very supportive parents who were very supportive of their education. And as you um, went down the tracks, you would find um, children from more disadvantaged families. And that's just a tougher road to hoe. I mean, I, I think there's no doubt about it. So I think the, the good intentions were to say, look, everyone ought to be given a very good education, not just the students in the uppermost track. So that was the intention. I think that turns out to be very difficult to do in practice. And therefore it was easier to sort of have all of the tracks converge on some sort of a middle point rather than um, be able to have this, you know, what Colin Powell probably experienced. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what his academic experience was, but I think we know that he had a very supportive family, that his, his family very much wanted him to get a good education, that they saw it as a, um, the key to being upwardly mobile and being able to have college going opportunities and other opportunities in life. Um, not every child has parents who are that supportive of education. And so we have to remember that teachers have to work with what they're, um, with what they're given. And it's, it's a tough job to be a teacher in the United States, but it is also, if anything, I think a tougher job because teachers are probably not allowed to use all of the same, um, let's call them measures of classroom control <laughs> politely, um, that they used to be able to use. And another thing to remember that I think is important is that uh, in the 50s and in still up through most of the 60s, most of the people who became teachers in the United States were relatively well-educated women who didn't have alternatives to being a teacher or their alternative was being a nurse or something like that. They didn't have lots of different job alternatives. One of the things that we saw was that once you gave women job opportunities, being a lawyer, being a business person, you know, doing all kinds of things, being a physician, instead of just being a nurse or a teacher, actually the, um, the average aptitude and the average education in terms of college quality, things like that, of teachers in the United States fell and interestingly enough, it wasn't just it fell among women, but it also fell among Blacks because being a public school teacher was one of the key occupations. If you were a smart Black person in the United States, you could be a public school teacher and they didn't have, they were more discriminated against in other areas. So ironically, from the point of view of the public schools, that discrimination and other occupations 
occupations was actually kind of good for the public schools. Could I, could I press you a little bit uh, on this, um, on, on two parts? One is the sort of larger zeitgeist. Uh, this is part of the argument over vouchers that we cannot let, we cannot let the Colin Powells, the, the few kids who have real promise, whose parents are gonna help, they have no means, they may be recent immigrants, but, but with a good family background, there's, you know, 20% of the kids and we can get them up into Harvard, MIT and, and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But we can't do that unless absolutely everybody is treated equally. That seems to be one of the stumbling blocks of the education system that has just ruined the top end without helping the bottom end. Mm-hmm. The smaller one. Um, so, yeah, there are there are changes, but charter schools seem to do well. Now, here's where you're maybe going to help me. With, we had a discussion about anecdotes and data, <laughs> but there are anecdotes that in the New York system, for example, the charter schools are doing a great job in today's labor market with today's teachers uh, and a great job for lots and lots of kids, not just, I mean, allowing the cream to, to go to the top. Certainly the, the, u- the inner city public school unions where you cannot fire a bad teacher, no matter how bad whatever it is, has something to do with how awful the education is and, and how these kids are not, even the ones who, who have the social background to excel are not allowed to go to the better school, to get to the better teachers, to get out of there. Okay, so let's talk about charter schools first, because I think that's really helpful for framing the discussion. The charter schools in New York City, as in most of the rest of the United States, very disproportionately take in disadvantaged students. They have um, uh, a lot of- oh, under- wait, sorry. This is the opposite of the usual narrative. So I just want to, to emphasize what you just it's, said. It's, it's obvious. Anyone who just wants to look at a map of New York City and see where the charter schools are located, will see right away that they must be taking in disadvantaged students disproportionately because they're located in Harlem and the South Bronx very disproportionately. They're not all there, but a lot of them, that's where they are, okay? So they're taking in a lot of underrepresented minorities and they have a lot of poor students, okay? So very um, free and reduced lunch would be almost universal in most charter schools. Um, Okay, so we've got that. I also agree with you that a lot of the charter schools in New York City and not just New York City, are doing a very good job taking in students who do not look like they are high achievers when they are brought in, okay? They're not high achievers if they come in as kindergartners. They're not high achievers if they go to a KIPP school and they start in the fifth grade. They're actually, by that time, probably about a year behind where they should be at least, okay? So this is not a group of super high achievers. And it's worth knowing also that charter schools in New York City and in most of the rest of the United States have to take students by lottery So of course, that doesn't mean that if you are a parent who really just doesn't care about thinking about sending your child to a charter school, you're equally likely to participate in the lottery. That's not true, but it is not the case that they somehow get to look at a pool of students and then pick off all of the students who they're gonna like, you know, who they think are going to be the highest achieving. So they are taking students by lottery once you're in the the lottery pool and it's not like some big long application, it's more like postcard kind of size application or one page, okay? Um, all right, so that's that's some of and and some of the charter schools in New York City just achieve amazing things. The charter schools in New York City that achieve amazing things, I would say, do a few things differently than the regular public schools. But I'm going to try to focus. I'll, I'll tell you a few things, but I'm going to really want to focus on one because I think that's the key thing. Okay, 
So they have longer school days, much longer. It's not unusual for them to go from 7 a.m. till 5 p.m. or till 6 p.m. So that doesn't mean the kids are in class all that time, but they're doing their homework at school. They've got their homework there. It's supervised. They have some extracurriculars after school. Okay, so the long school day is a big thing. They actually spend time on the subjects that they're supposed to be learning. So they don't fritter away their time doing other stuff, okay? They kind of have very strong ideas about how much do you spend on math? How much do you spend on reading? You know, how much do you spend on science? And so there's often, there are often strict guidelines there. I think though the biggest thing is the teachers, okay? The one thing that every economist of education, I believe, I don't think there's any disagreement on this, believes is that teachers make a difference and that teachers are the thing that makes a difference. And I think everyone sort of knows this from his or her own life, right? You can look back and say, if I hadn't had, in my case, Miss Blaine in the third grade, would I be the same person? Maybe not, right? There are teachers who are very, very memorable and who sort of change your life. And that's not just in our anecdotal thoughts, that's what the statistics tell us, right? That there are people who teach side by side, they're both teaching in the third grade. One of them raises students' achievement by more than whole school year. Another one barely raises their um, achievement at all. They hardly learn anything in her classroom. And that they can just be teaching side by side. And in the public schools, they might be getting paid exactly the same amount because in most public school systems, your pay totally depends on your seniority and what degree you have. So whether you have a master's degree or not, basically, is, that's, the main, that's the main thing. All right, so charter schools, first of all, do not hire that way. They do not pay that way. And they like to hire a lot of relatively young teachers, like recent Teach for America teachers or people who are still in the Teach for America program. So they come from good colleges and universities, and they have a very strong educational background. And um, those teachers work really, really hard in the charter schools. And it, the charter schools have this great model, which as long as the public schools do silly things about paying teachers, this model will work forever, okay? So here's their model. I hire a young Teach for America teacher. If she went to work in the regular public schools, she would not be paid very well. She has no seniority or experience, right? And she doesn't have a master's degree at this point. She just got out of undergraduate. Okay, so she's not- And doesn't have a degree in education. She might have a degree or she or she might have a degree in history or mathematics or science. Math or physics or science where they know something. Yes. She has a subject. She has what we call a subject area degree. She's not going to get paid very much in the public schools. So the charter school- can actually pay her more, even though it has a lower budget per pupil than the public schools, because it doesn't have a whole bunch of um, teachers sort of sitting around who have 20 years of seniority and are getting paid a ton compared to the beginning teachers. It just doesn't do that, okay? Charter schools just, they have a few, but you know, that's not what they do, okay? What they do is they kind of have this system whereby they say, hey, we're getting young people who have a lot of energy. We actually can pay them more than the regular public schools, even though we have a lower budget per pupil and they work really hard and they're really inspiring to the students and so forth. And maybe they won't be here when they're 20 year veterans. Maybe they will go on to do something else and that's okay. 
I'd like to segue into I'd like to segue into colleges here, if you don't mind, Caroline. Uh, HR question for you. Um, part of the Colin Powell story is that of ROTC. You read the book that you had up, My American Journey, and he points out he was a C student at CCNY, and then he joins ROTC and things click for him. I'm curious your thoughts, HR, on the health of ROTC right now as an institution. Uh, it is, to be polite, very complicated at schools like Stanford, Harvard, for example. Um, is ROTC delivering as it should? Yeah, I think it really is. I've had the opportunity to meet with a lot of ROTC cadets here at San Jose State and then recently at a very big program at Arizona State University. These are so, so such impressive young men and women who are are dedicated to service, who have been challenged in RTC. They've gone through summer training. They're excited about their leadership opportunities and the opportunity to serve in, in organizations where, you know, the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, like including their own lives for you. So they're already becoming inculcated with the, the ethic of service and, and understand the great rewards uh, of serving as, as an officer in our army. What's regrettable is that some of our universities still don't have ROTC on campus. It's regrettable for another number of reasons. I mean, how could Stanford, you know, not have ROTC on campus? It's just, it's kind of ridiculous, I think. But also it, it inconveniences the cadets who then have to travel somewhere else to, 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 uh, uh, to, to, to partake in ROTC. But actually, I think even more important, there's no visible presence on the Stanford campus such that a Stanford student who may not have considered military service looks at and says, oh, that's something I might want to do. So I, I think it's way past time, you know, to bring to bring ROTC back to Stanford's campus and, and we ought to just do it. I think the the other the, other, the military analogy, though, I'd like to ask uh, to Caroline is, you know, there, there's there, there's a recognition uh, that sometimes Fresh troops, even though they're not experienced, are better to bring into battle than those who have been in, in battle for a long time because they're exhausted. And and I think, do you think that might be the case, right? In some of these more difficult uh, schools where where those teachers who you mentioned, Caroline, who are who have been there for you know for decades, are just worn down by how hard it is, how hard it is to deal with the administration, how hard it is to deal with the lack of support. Uh, how hard it is to compensate for for the lack of, of family support for children's education or the end of programs, Caroline, a lot of times where, you know, the, the, the children who are troubled would typically have been able to be moved into a program that would cope with their with it, with their unique needs. Now, because many of those programs have been cut back, a lot of those troublemaking students are right back in the classroom. And, and the effect is that the teacher has to spend all their time with the, with the students who are troubled rather than those you know who are there to learn and and have tremendous potential but but it's difficult to unlock that potential well I definitely think that teachers just like anyone else get worn down um, and that if you're in an environment where you feel like I'm um, climbing this hill every year uh, it it is something that could be quite exhausting I think also as teachers get older they become, more, they, they end up with families of their own. And so part of it is that that energy that you could pour into other people's children, you now may be pouring into your own children, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is, um, it is an, it can be an exhausting, it's like being a young person in the military. You might be glad to be surrounded by other people who have a lot of energy too, and are really feeling devoted. And this is, this is their, goal. This is their thing. They feel 
energized by the service component of the role. And um, so I think teachers are, are, are like that as well. I think when it, you're, you know, your comment about ROTC is really interesting because um, we really do not see ROTC people on campus at um, certainly, I don't think I've ever seen one at Stanford. Not in uniform. <laughs> no, they go uniform. elsewhere to drill. Yeah. I can remember seeing just a few um, when I was at Harvard as a professor mm-hmm. because they would go to MIT to do their ROTC training. And so we would see them every now and again. But I think that lack of presence of the military on college campuses has an effect that's kind of subtle. It's not just that they don't get the ROTC experience, which they might, which might do for them what it did for Colin Powell, mm-hmm. but it also creates this increasing divide that we see between um, people who go to elite colleges and universities and people who are in the military. And the people who go to elite colleges and universities often think they're, the military is for a different sort of person. I'm, I don't even meet them, right? And I think that's really bad for, um, for the country because the military serves an important role and everyone ought to consider it to be part of public service. And if, you, if it's just visible, it, uh, yeah, it's part of a culture uh, in sort of left-wing orthodoxy of university that disdains the military and mm-hmm. wants nothing to do with it. But and I want to- I just, just, just want to point out, I just want to point out long before he was a senator, then major Dan Sullivan wrote a really, a really solid op-ed. Uh, I, I can't remember where it appeared, maybe the New York Times, uh, right. about the absence of ROTC on, on Harvard's campus. And yes. I mean, it, it got a lot of attention and I think it generated a debate there and, and maybe a little bit of a different a- approach, but uh, that might be worth recir- recirculating. I, I mm-hmm. want to ask a question of both of you involving military and education beyond our ROTC itself. I, I just finished finally reading uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which I thought was oh. a very interesting book. And part of his story was, even though he did... Uh, you know, he got his act together and, and got through high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he realized he wasn't ready and joined uh, the Marines and relates a wonderful story of his time in the Marines, straightening out his personal life, straightening out his attitudes towards things, including what he said that I found was very interesting. The Marines don't just teach you stuff, they teach you life skills. So he went down to buy his first car and, and the Marines sent someone with him and he wants to buy a BMW. And the guy said, no, no, you're buying the Toyota Corolla over here. And he's, he wants to sign up for the high interest loan. And the guy said, no, 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 you get to shop for loans. He didn't know you can shop for loans. So the military seems to be able to teach personal management and life skills in a way that our education system does not teach. So how do they do it? And, and maybe should our education system be teaching a little more life skills? Is it possible to do that? Let's let HR jump on this first. <laughs> well, I mean, teaching personal finance is, is part of it, right? You, you have young men and women who come in without a lot of experience in making these sorts of decisions. So, you know, the, the military, I mean, you're part of a family in the military, right? So so members of the family will make sure that you, or ho- hopefully make sure you don't make those those mistakes uh, just out of, out of unfamiliarity with what's available. And then I think what's really important, you know, I, Nothing matures a person like responsibility, I think. Right? And when you take on responsibility as a member of a team and then later as a squad leader, you learn a lot of important life skills. And, and especially maybe it's not just all about you and your gratification, right? There are higher callings in life and you can contribute 
to worthy endeavors. Uh, and then also, I think you know, they, they understand better you know, that they can grow together, uh, achieve excellence. You know, what you can what you can achieve as a team is much greater than what you can do as an individual. So I think there are really just tremendous rewards associated with military service that, that are, are less tangible than than the hardships that are, I think, more readily apparent. Yeah, I, I am. I, I want to really agree with HR about the life skills um, taught in the military. I don't think that they are taught as much in public schools as they could be. Okay, now they may be taught more in private schools and in charter schools because they have a little bit more autonomy, and people who are teachers and administrators may feel less constrained in terms of, am I allowed? to use a normative kind of um, phrase even, you should do this. You should shop for car loans. You should be a team player. You should, um, a lot of those shoulds have been removed from education because of sensitivities around things. But I will notice that the military is one of the most integrated organizations in the United States. It takes in uh, people from all walks of life, right? It takes in lots of underrepresented minorities. It takes in relatively recent immigrants, people who come to the United States when they're children and then end up joining the military. So it's not as though if you have diversity, you automatically have to not have learned these life skills or have people learn to work in teams or learn to work together. But maybe... Um, I don't know why it would be harder for teachers necessarily, except of course, people don't enlist in school. They just enroll in school. So there is a difference in how much control you have over your students and how much you have um, over your cadets. But I, I think that there are some lessons that could be learned by the education system from the military, precisely because it is diverse. It is not as though it's just picking off some set of people who are going to be really easy you are, he did describe that you are working for something that not everybody gets. You are trying to become a Marine and many wash out. And, and that is different than the situation in a typical public school where. Right. right. You know, Carolyn, I've been knocking around California for the better part of three decades now looking at policy and a lot of the education narrative in California is how K through 12 fails to prepare students for college. And if you look at the stats in the CSU system, CSU Los Angeles, for example, the numbers are staggering in terms of how many kids have to take remedial English or remedial math. Uh, this gets into the question of who goes into college and where and a question of admissions, if you will. Uh, Stanford put its numbers out the other day. I think it was record 3.9%. And you look at it and you think, my God, who can get into this university? But you've been studying this for some time now and your research is fascinating because what you suggest it's not enough low-income kids are applying to schools like Stanford and Ivy League schools. I'm curious, Caroline, what would that be? Is that is that a failure of the kids and their parents to dream or their guidance counselors letting them down or the university's not reaching to the school? What, what's going on here? Yeah, I would not blame the universities particularly, and I also wouldn't blame their schools particularly. So um, what we have is a problem in the United States where some students and their families are very well informed about the college landscape. And they understand that there is a very big difference perhaps between a Stanford and maybe one of the less selective CSUs, um, California State University um, system schools and a community college, okay? 
But not everyone understands that there's a big difference between those things. And furthermore, they may think, well, the community college is local and it's inexpensive. And if I send my, my if I try to send my child to Stanford, even if he or she could get in, it will cost me, you know, I have to be a millionaire to go there or something like that. Okay, that is false. Okay, because generally speaking, if you go to a place like a Stanford or a Harvard, Yale, University of Chicago, whatever, it will be cheaper than going to community college if you can get in, okay? Because they have much more money and they use that money to provide very generous financial aid. So a lot of it is just that parents don't have this information. They're afraid of the high, what we call the sticker price, instead of knowing how much their child will actually pay, which might be zero, okay? Um, and uh, their teachers may not be that familiar with this and their college counselors. First of all, there are about 350 students for every college counselor in the United States. So it can hardly be giving everyone perfect advice. It's just not possible. Okay, so their college counselors may not realize this and negotiating this system of all of the different applications and the financial aid applications and everything else is something that's quite easy for uh, parents who themselves have been through one of these selective colleges or universities, they know how the system works. But if I'm the only student in my high school who has been qualified to go to University of Chicago in the past seven years, there is no older student who can tell me how to do it, okay? My high school teachers and counselors are probably not that familiar with the system. And they're likely to say, gee, you know, you're a really good student you should go to college for sure, but then that, that that's not enough, right? They need to know which college, why should University of Chicago be a good place for you to apply, right? And so I think that's really where the system breaks down. We like to call the problem, the problem of the missing one-offs. So if you go to Stuyvesant, you could be the poorest student in New York City, but you're surrounded by people who know how to get students into the best colleges and universities in the United States, okay? They also know how financial aid works. If you live in a small town in America and you're the one student in the past seven years who's been qualified to get into University of Chicago, you're just a one-off. And so these are the students who don't apply, but it's not really the college. I mean, just to be clear, I don't think this is the college's fault. I don't think anyone is to blame because it's not as though the University of Chicago or Stanford or Harvard or whatever would know that you were the one person in seven years. And so they're just going to descend by helicopter on your, you know, on your school lawn and pick you up and get you to apply. That's that's not realistic because they don't know that you're there right away. And by the time that they figure out that you're there, you haven't applied yet and you may not have done the things that are necessary to apply. Yeah. So it's a bigger part of the sort of cultural and geographic divide that we're experiencing. There's a lot of implicit knowledge that we who are in the system don't recognize we have and that we pass on to our children and our neighbor's kids. And if you're living in sort of an isolated place where people don't have that, that knowledge isn't present, you just have no idea how the system works. And, and it's just incomprehensible to us that there are people who don't have any idea how the system works. Oh, most people don't know how this, I mean, exactly. <laughs> we don't know how their system works either. So how, so how, do, how do we fix this? Well, I mean, we, we have to try to give people better information. Actually, so I did an intervention with um, Sarah Turner, who's a professor at University of Virginia, and we did a, a randomized control trial with 40,000 students in the United States, and we gave them, they were all pretty high achievers, 
And most of them were very low income students, although not all of them were, because we also wanted to see what happened with higher income students. We gave them information about financial aid, making comparisons between different schools, different schools' graduation rates, the different outcomes at different schools, things like that. And it really made a big difference for them. And we are still working on other types of interventions along the same lines. But information, we can't, we can't change everything about um, a student's life, especially as they get close to the end of high school, because by then some things are kind of locked in, right? Mm-hmm. There's one thing if you change the information that they got when they were you know, second graders or something. But um, we're working with high school students so they already have a level of achievement and aptitude and some preparation that's already somewhat locked in, but we can change the information they have so that they're not at an informational disadvantage relative to students who come from, you know, a family with two parents who went to selective colleges or something. So, so let me, I think it's, it's, it's information, but uh, Caroline, don't you think it's also really just being able to, 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 um, make children aware of the great promise of America and how they can take advantage of it, you know, either through, you know, through vocational schools or through universities. And, you know, two, two of our daughters did, did to teach for America and they were elementary school teachers and they just, they, they, they called their students, their, their college bound students, you know, and they tried to, to instill in them a, a recognition that, you know, that they can have these tremendous opportunities are there ways to do that as well? I mean, I'm trying to think of maybe Boys and Girls Clubs of America. Do you know where, not, not just the specific college guidance information and what's available from a financial aid perspective, but just letting large numbers of Americans know that that they do have the opportunity uh, to, t- to take advantage of higher ev- uh, education? Well, so Teach for America is one of my, um, is one of the programs that I like best in the United States. It also is, by the way, there's a number there's a international version of it too. Um, and one of the reasons why is precisely what you said with your daughters. Teach for America teachers, when they go into a school, they are not just teaching the children. They are also serving as role models for children and saying, you can do this. This is something that is a possibility. You should not think that this is not a possibility for people like you. Now, I don't think that we only, Teach for America, um, teachers tend to come from selective colleges and universities. So that's kind of the role that they're modeling for students. But I also think that it's important for students, not everyone is going to go to college or university and that doesn't, there's nothing wrong with that, right? So they need to have other role models as well. And we need to try to get them as much as possible in front of the students. And those could be local businessmen, they could be somebody who's um, involved more in a kind of craft type of job, vocational type of job. Uh, But students are very influenced by the people whom they meet. I mean, that's why I said at the beginning when we were talking about charter schools, I said the one thing that we know is that students are very influenced by the teachers whom they encounter. And that's because you're there with the teacher 180 days, maybe six hours a day, that's a very big influence, but putting um, people in front of students will inspire them to try to take advantage of the opportunities that they're offered in this country is really important. And there are a lot of opportunities offered. Although I will say some kids come from a really difficult background and we've also got to acknowledge that. 
So I was going to, where our conversation is kind of going like, oh, everyone should go to college and we just need to get the information out. But I, I do, I want to check my anecdotes against your data, <laughs> that there is a certain amount of, let's call it too much college, that colleges do let in a lot of kids who, um, you know, they, they may be smart, but they have horrible problems at home or, uh, you know, personal habits or lack of just lack of preparation. You know, by the time they've gotten through high school, everyone's ahead of them. Or, or they just don't want to do higher education. I mean, I, I mean, some of the smartest people I've met in my life were tank mechanics and aircraft mechanics. And thank God well, for them. Thank God, God they didn't go to college. I wanted to get to that because um, a lot of people go to college, waste their time taking nothing majors. It, it doesn't do any good for them or they get discouraged by the college being too hard. And, and, and then they've had an experience of I'm no good at somebody. Meanwhile, yeah, my plumber says he can't get an apprentice. My car, my carpenter says he can't get anyone to work for him. Um, you know, maybe in this sense, we're, we're pushing college too much and that it's just not a right match either because of, of where you started from or, or your personal inclinations and, and being a tank. And, and there's, there is plenty of dignity in being a great tank mechanic. Right. Um, and, and, but the, yes, the high school students and they want to be a social media influencer or a basketball star. Uh, so maybe they, they, you know, maybe that track needs to go. So where am I? Am I, am I right on this Caroline or not? Right. You're pushing right. college too much. By the way, I love plumbing, but I will not do it at your house. Okay, I only do, I only do plumbing for myself and my husband. Well, I love uh, someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> so that's got a welding machine in the background. I'm really good at plumbing. Ah, Caroline, we need to make a date about our. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm on a lot of old houses, and sooner or later, you learn how to do things for yourself. No, I'm good at plumbing and electrical wiring. You can clean up in this neighborhood with that with that job. <laughs> And, okay. and I don't, I don't touch any of it because I, all I do is I'm very good at breaking things, but not at repairing anything. <laughs> right, go ahead, go ahead, Carolyn. Never know that about me, but I'm like, no, I'm really good at plumbing. Yeah. Great. So, um, um, yes. Okay. So let's talk about some basics about people going to college, and then why I think it's why we have a, such a big problem. Many students by the end of high school are achieving at a level that is what. Um, is not described as college ready by the ACT, which has a sort of college readiness standard. Now, just to be clear, this college readiness standard is not aggressive, okay? It's based on data. So what they do is they say, essentially, how likely are you to fail out of college in your freshman year? Okay, never make it to your sophomore year, okay? And then they say, well, who are the people whose scores suggest that this is very likely to happen? And that's what they call not college ready. And college ready are people who are pretty likely to make it through at least a few years of college. Okay, so it's not, it's not some high in the sky sort of standard. It's a reasonable standard. Only about 25% of American students, when they're tested at the end of high school, make it into the college readiness category. So they're college ready. All right, so fine. 25% of students look like they're college ready. About 80% of each cohort is going to try college. So that tells you there's a big difference between those who are college ready and those who actually try college. Now, I don't have a problem with people trying college because some people grow up, especially young men who are often a little immature in high school and then they grow up and then they can handle it and so forth and so on. No problem with trying college. But you have to realize that 
um, your probability of succeeding if you were not college ready at the end of high school is not very high. And so you would be prepared for that, okay? It's one, first of all, people do have a sense of failure. They kind of end up leaving. They don't, they often don't drop out thinking I'm dropping out for good, but they are in fact dropping out for good. They just stop doing college. They do less and less of it. And then pretty soon they're not doing it at all. Okay. And maybe they'll try going back when they're in their later twenties or something like that. Although usually they don't complete them either. So it's not, it's not like they suddenly solves everything because you're in your later twenties. But the other thing that's bad about this is we have a system of financial aid in the United States that gives you student loans potentially, and it gives you grants, especially if you're a low income person, it gives you the Pell Grant, you can qualify for some other grants as well. You use those up if you go to college, but you don't actually end up making very much progress. So you can, many, many students in the United States, and this is what's really a pity, they go to college for a relatively short period of time, they acquire some student loans, they use up their Pell Grants, or something, or part of them anyway, right? They use up their grant eligibility and they really have nothing to show for it, okay? And that is a huge problem because then when they do wish to go back, maybe later on, maybe they grow up a bit, maybe they change a bit, maybe they get a better sense of what it is that they're good at doing, they have actually used up their financial aid. And so that's a, that's a serious problem. I, I always like to say, if somebody wants to go to college to put their toes in the water, and just find out what the water's like, that's okay. As an economist, we would say there's option value in finding out whether you know, you're, you're suited for this or not. But if it's not working for you, you should leave, right? You should not think that college is for everybody because that's just not true. And college isn't that different from high school. So if you were really hated high school, you really didn't like going to math class, you're pretty likely to end up in remedial math in your freshman year of college, and it's going to be a lot like high school. So, Caroline, let's talk about life after education, which is the workplace. You and I did a uh, Zoom call back in February for uh, Hoover's donors where we talked about this. Um, so much is written about this automation and remote work, um, what effects we're going to see in uh, large cities if people don't go back to the offices, what happens in terms of services and tax bases in those cities. What has your attention these days when it comes to the future of the workplace? What are you, what are you looking at? I'm really looking at remote work more than automation. I don't. Th I think automation is proceeding. We do have robots that uh, do a lot of um, jobs in specific industries, like the automobile manufacturing industry. Um, we also have some artificial intelligence that is doing work in some specific fields, but I see that as being a kind of a continuous change that's just going to, it's, there's nothing special going on. Um, remote work is very different. And that's because I think that there was a lot of, I don't know whether you want to call it status quo bias or hysteresis, or just, I've always gone to work nine to five, Monday through Friday. I've always gone to the office and worked with people in the conference room or- And everyone else that, was there. Right. But it wasn't necessarily the case that as we went into the pandemic, that all of those habits were optimal, okay, from the point of view of efficient working. And I think because people were forced to make changes, they're not going to return to work in the same way because it probably wasn't that efficient before, right? And now we've had this huge disruption 
And so um, lots of businesses that have workers who normally work at desks, do a lot of their work remotely, are probably going to move to more of a hybrid model where that people come into the office a, a few times a week, but they don't have to come in very often. I think this is going to make, I, I, frankly, I think this is going to be um, uh, a big difference for a lot of employers. It's commercial real estate is going to be used differently because you just don't need the same footprint, right? Uh, for central cities, I think probably rents are going to drop because people just won't need such big headquarters or they won't need so many offices in their um, in their downtown office buildings. And the other thing that's important is if you're only going in, say, twice a week, maybe before you really wanted to live close to the office because that commute was five days a week and that wasn't very fun and you did it during lunch hour. And now you're going in twice a week or three times a week and maybe you have more flexible timing and so forth. So I think also rents are probably going to fall for um, um, residential real estate in center cities or close to the core business districts. I think that's going to be a big thing. Well, wow. Caroline, can I ask a follow-up on education? I mentioned I was just out at Arizona State. It's a really innovative place, right? And, and the president there, Michael Crow, has made it his mission to try to make education more accessible to more people. And I think what's relevant to that is they have an, an education plus uh, organization. There is the name of it that is charged with trying to make remote education even better than in person, right? Not to have remote just because it's another separate thing you can do um, or enroll in, but to try to make it even better. And the other, to relate it back to our previous discussion, to bring people back into college who may have tried it and it wasn't right for them at that period of their, their lives they have started a program where you can take a couple of courses, and if you do well in those courses, you get admitted uh, to, to Arizona State. So I, I just, I just wonder what you think now about remote education. We talked about remote work, right? And then, and then, what other innovative ideas do, do you see out there in terms of making education more accessible? So Arizona State has been um, very innovative for quite some time. It has had a succession of leaders who have had those sort of innovative ideas. I think it takes remote education very seriously and has really tried to produce high quality remote education. Okay, so Arizona State is um, doing all kinds of terrific things. I do think it's important to try to get people back in and not get them just into a low quality program, but get them back into a high quality sort of program if they're coming back in. Because there's a, there's a lot of difference in quality between um, some American and America is great at both the highest quality educational institutions in the world in higher education. And we also take the cake when it comes to the lowest quality education institutions in the world. So we, we've got the whole spectrum. Okay, so it does matter which one you go to and whether you're getting a quality education or not. So Arizona State is kind of pretty far along on this spectrum of trying to provide both quality and remote access and opportunities for people to go back and get back into um, college or university. But let me just say the, um, the evidence on remote higher education is mixed, okay? It's very mixed. And the way I would put it is, and this is also true if we're talking about K-12 actually, if you are a motivated student, and maybe you also have a motivated family if we're talking K-12, okay? And you have reasonable access to a computer and a fairly quiet space to do your work, okay? Uh, remote education can work 
really well. And some people actually do much better in remote education than they do in, in the classroom. These are usually highly motivated students, students who don't enjoy going to school all that much. Maybe their school, maybe they're bullies at their school or something like that, or they just don't like the environment that much, but they really like learning a lot. Okay. And so sometimes they do much better than they would do in person. That's totally possible. However, there are a lot of students who don't feel very motivated unless there is someone in front of them trying to get them to learn. And that's kind of the more typical student. And so when we look at remote education in the United States, whether it's K-12 or higher education, we see a lot of people who really um, spend quite a lot of money on remote education, and we can see almost no benefit for them. Okay, so it's, I think it's just different, you know, it works well for some, does not work well for a lot of um, people. And I think uh, um, parents often sort of know which type their child is, and that's an important thing to know. And maybe you know yourself when you're involved in higher education. For instance, Georgia Tech has a, um, a very renowned computer science program that is taken by students all over the world, and they can get a degree in computer science from Georgia Tech with this program. And But they're highly motivated people, right? It's not everyone who's engaged in this intensive computer science uh, degree at Georgia Tech. And, and some of what you get from ed education is the socialization. I mean, certainly our universities are not just about learning what's in class. It's about forming a cohort. Frankly, the higher, the upper, the universities, the top level universities in the US are the gateway to forming what the American elite is going to be. It's, it's not even the computer, but we do have this experience. So when I looked into uh, online classes, you know, the fall off rate is tremendous. It just doesn't have that stick to it character that both the teacher that you mentioned, the structure, the test is coming and the, the peer group pressure of having, we're, we're all in this together produces. And I wonder whether the same problem is gonna show up with, uh, with online work as well. I mean, as economists, we've, we've always thought of, um, you could do at home, historically you did at home things where there was a piece rate. You could knit sweaters and and you know send the sweaters out for for ten bucks or whatever it was, uh, and get paid by the sweater. But then stuff where you're paid by the hour. Traditionally, people kind of went to the office. A lot of that was for the monitoring purpose of it. Now, I've I've heard stories, horrible stories. It sounds like of you know if you're working at home that you have to turn on the camera and your boss can make sure that you're not goofing off all the time. Uh, but there has been that that feature that salaried work needs monitoring. A lot of what we do in offices is, is networks. A lot of the problem, you know, we can keep going under the pandemic, but onboarding new people into the culture and network of the institution. Right. Uh, so there, there is some of the why didn't it happen already? Like Yahoo, for example, tried on uh, stay at home. And then there was this famous moment when, uh, when, when they said, no, everybody get back to the office. We know you're just goofing off all day long, uh, long at home. So um, the cities may fall apart for other reasons, or they may become places of amenities for retired people. Uh, but I, I, I wonder if we're, if we really were at a multiple equilibrium state of those very fundamental uh, behavioral and economic forces of how hard it is to keep going me alone and a computer uh, without all the other monitoring and a work, social pressure and, and other things that happen in person. Um, yeah, I think probably the thing that we worry about the most is that people do not have the 
but networking, but it's also just those spontaneous conversations that people have at the office. You can call them the water cooler conversations or something. I don't know that there are a lot of water coolers around anymore, but anyway, the water cooler conversations or the getting a cup of coffee conversations. So that's why I don't think anyone is really suggesting that lots and lots of businesses, with some exceptions, where in fact, it's very easy to monitor what people are doing because they're doing coding or it's a call center or something like that. Well, maybe we'll, we will become more gig. I mean, there's a lot of legal things pushing us in the other direction. But if, if your job is filling out insurance claims, well, you know, tech can monitor that and you, you can do 17 insurance claims and that can I be there to be your quota or we pay you per claim or something. Right. Yeah. So I think it's more this notion that's going to be a hybrid. Right? People will go to the office less, not that people will not go to the office at all. So that they will go two days a week or three days a week, not five days a week. But that's still a big change in how much time a person spends commuting. And you probably don't need to have a water cooler conversation every single person every single day, right? So you might be able to do it in uh, fewer days per week. And some teams could come in Monday through Wednesday and some teams could come in Thursday and Friday. Also, we're guilty of our kind of work, which involves sitting at a computer, being creative, doing new stuff. We, we are so fortunate, but this is so rare compared to what most people do to earn a living in this country. Yeah, that's true. Professors are kind of unusual people. They write, write books. We sit in front of computers. That's what we do for a living. Have okay, wonderful we, talks like this. So we've broken news today. Professors are unusual people. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to be a wrap for the show. I think we've uh, we've run our course for today. Carolyn, I thought this was a great conversation. We could go for another hour talking about this. I would point people, by the way, uh, the first rule of Goodfellows is to read what Goodfellows write. I'd point you to John Cochran's very fine blog, The Grumpy Economist, where he has a post. It is called uh, Build Back Sausage, in which John does the absolutely masochistic job of going through the Build Back Better infrastructure package, trying to figure out what should be done in education, which again is another conversation. Should the federal government be doing this, the state, home schools, what have you? But Carolyn, thanks very much for coming on today. We really enjoyed the talk. Oh, I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, John. Thanks, yeah. HR. And hey, thanks, thanks Carolyn. It's great. it's great to see you. Come back soon. We got hours more stuff to do, especially yes. on these incentive issues. And a word to yeah. our listeners, HR mentioned that he has teachers in his family. My, I have a niece in South Carolina who teaches. Her father was a career teacher. His mother is a career teacher. It is a noble profession. So by no means do we mean to run down the institution at all. We all share the same dream. We want better schools for kids, plain and simple. So, hey, Bill, if I could jump in and just say my mom taught in inner city Philadelphia at 12th and Rush in North Philadelphia at the Climber School uh, for about 35 years. So, I just wanted to just second your your great your great comment there at the end. Yeah, my mom was a teacher too. So, (laughs) 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 Um, yeah, I think the kind the thing that I really wanted to emphasize was that teachers do make a difference, right? That is the one thing we know for sure. Teachers make a huge difference. So, if you're thinking of becoming a teacher, if you know someone who's a teacher, thank a person who's a good teacher because they make a really big difference. Well said, well said, Carolyn. Let's end on that note. So that's it for this week of uh, this week's episode of Goodfellas. We will be back. We will be back next week with a new episode. I think we're going to do another live shoot like we did last week. I think Neil Ferguson will be back. We're going to be recording uh, at a Hoover Institution event. It'll be two days before Halloween, so maybe John and HR want to kind of come and preview the Halloween costumes for us. I'm dying to see what they plan to trick or treat as this year. Uh, I want to get John's thoughts, by the way, on Halloween is a good economic model or not. So that'll be next week's show. So on behalf of my colleagues, the good fellows, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, Caroline Hawksby, 
Thanks for watching this week. By all means, take care, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.